Father, I'm thankful so much that I have a small church. I'm not thankful, Father, because we wouldn't want to have more. For we do want to reach everyone you would give us a chance to reach. But, Father, I'm so thankful for the chance to know so many people individually, to to be able to fellowship in an earnest and sincere way with friends, with brothers and sisters. I thank you, Father, for the intimacy that comes with being in a small group and in a small church, the chance to share things, to be open and to speak with one another and to know what prayer requests are needed in every corner of this building. I thank you, Father, that you've given us that blessing. Perhaps one day, Father, you will also give us the blessing to reach many more. But I suspect that if that day comes, we may look back on this day and wonder why we ever wish to take care of more than you've given us so far. For it is a daunting task, Father, to raise up men and women in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and to care for their spiritual needs, to prepare hearts for the work you have ahead of them, to be discipled in this day while we wait for the day to come when we will see you face to face. It is no easy thing, Father, but what a joy it is to be called into service, whether as a pastor or an elder, as a teacher, as a leader, or as a parent, as a student, as a worker, as someone who may come along in the shadows and quietly do something that all depend on. We thank you, Father, for the myriad of ways in which you use this body, training us up, training us through so many means. And I thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is that I have to prepare and deliver your word. I hope, Father, that in all that I endeavor to say, your spirit has been involved to give me the right words. And I pray, Father, that that what is spoken will be heard as from you and not from a man. That the power of it would not be lost because of the weakness of the deliverer. I pray, Father, you would continue in that work today and in every day to come. For as long as we tarry waiting for the Lord, we ask that you would prepare us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we have been studying Genesis for roughly 30 months. And for almost half of that time, we've been focused on the life of Jacob. In fact, if you do a count of chapters, half of the chapters in the book of Genesis relate to the life of Jacob. We've been watching his shortcomings and his failings, and there have been plenty. We've been noting his strengths and his successes along the way. In my view of the man, I see him as a real person out of the text of Scripture. An authentic man, someone who's called to follow God, but in his weakness stumbles from here to there, finding his way in the dark as it is, flawed, but growing in the grace of God and in God's loving care, developing into the man God wanted him to be. He's clearly an important figure in the book and in God's plan for the world, not the least of which because of the number of chapters devoted to him, but in a sense, you could say that Jacob embodies God's response to Adam's fall in the garden. Remember Adam's life as he started began in this idyllic, perfect ease in the garden and it ended in a struggle. It ended in toil in the wilderness because of his sin. But Jacob's life began in toil and in struggle, even in the womb, if you remember. But as it's come to fruition now, as he's entered into Goshen, it culminates with him living in a land of peace and ease of being provided for in an oasis of sorts in the midst of a famine. It's not a perfect parallel, but it's an intriguing one. Now, today we're going to learn another reason why God has made Jacob so unique in his plan, why he has called him and why he is so special to all that God is doing. Remember, Jacob is the last of the men we call patriarchs. But when we say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
Have you noticed we never go any further? It's not Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and somebody. It just stops at Jacob. And today we're going to learn why. So now the time has come to conclude Jacob's story. And we have three chapters in the book of Genesis remaining. And in those three chapters, we're going to tie up several loose threads that have been waiting to be resolved now for some time in our stories. First, we have to watch how Jacob's life ends physically, how he comes to the end of himself. And then secondly, we're going to learn what comes of the seed promise and the birthright, which we've been tracing since it was first given to Abraham. Where does it go after Jacob? Third, we have to come to the end of Joseph's story, because now for the last 10 chapters or so, these two men have been intertwined very closely, as we know. And then finally, in all of these things and in others included, we're going to come to appreciate the sovereignty of God once again to work all that he has planned to accomplish all of his purposes through this family. And we're going to see that thread as well. But today we return to the end of chapter 47 and then enter into chapter 48. And we're really looking at one continuous scene. It's all taking place at basically the same time. Israel has his children settled with him in Goshen. And meanwhile, Joseph's back in the capital of Egypt attending to the government of Egypt as he is supposed to do. And that's where we now go in chapter 47. Start with me in verse 27, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near... He called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, Swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship. At the head of the bed. Jacob's arrived in Egypt and he's settled in Goshen, which is where we knew he was headed. And now we learn he's lived there for 17 years. The first five of those 17, if you remember, were the concluding years of the famine. They had five years of famine remaining when they showed up in Egypt. So of the 17, the first five are in famine, but he's in Goshen where Jacob is cared for by his son, Joseph. And then, after the famine concludes, they get 12 more years in the land. I find it interesting that he lives in the land one year for each of his sons after the famine is over. And we're told he lives to a total of 147 years. But he's not dead yet. Moses is simply giving us the end before he's ready to describe how he comes to that end. So in the next section, you're going to see the last days of Jacob's life told to us, knowing that he has reached his 147th year at this point. And that story begins with Jacob insisting that his son, Joseph, would swear an oath for him. Now, the oath ritual that you hear described here is a particular one. It's very particular to the time and to the culture. A man in that day might request that another man place his hand in a certain place on his body. And in my English Bible, it's rendered under the thigh. But in reality... Jacob was asking Joseph to place his hand on one of his more intimate body parts, his genital region, to be specific. And the act is done in this way specifically to evoke very powerful symbolism. That area of a man's body represented life 
in that day. It still does to us to an extent. But in that day, it had a very powerful association with the creation or the giving of life. And so as a result of that natural role of the man's body, an oath would be taken in such a way as to symbolize that the promise was being taken on the life of the one taking it. That if they did not come through with the oath, with what they promised, they were saying that their own life could be cut off and their posterity could be cut off. Their family, their sons could be killed. It was a way of making a very solemn promise on a very high penalty for failure. And the whole thing is symbolized by this specific action that you see Joseph taking. So the promise here that's asked of Joseph by Jacob is when I die, don't let me be buried in Egypt. Don't put my body in the ground in Egypt. Instead, he wants his body to be preserved, which as we know in Egypt was a classic art. And as a result of that preservation, he would be in a state where they could then transport him back to Canaan, where he wanted to be buried in the family's traditional burial place, which was the cave of Machpelah. So in that place where Abraham and Isaac have already been buried, he expected to be buried with them. Now that's his request. Now I want you to pay attention to his words. Look, Jacob says that after he is, quote, lying with the fathers, then his body is to be carried back to Canaan. We can see by those words in that order that Jacob did not consider lying with the fathers to mean burial because he says he would be with the fathers even before his body reached Canaan and was buried. So when he says, I will be with the fathers, his instructions tell us that he had faith in an afterlife. That he knew that once he left his physical body, he himself still existed in some form. And in that spirit form, whatever it was, he would be where his fathers existed then and even now. So he was demonstrating he had faith that he lived on in some other way. And then post that moment, he's giving instructions about what should happen to his body. He believes he will live on by God's power, just as Abraham and Isaac did. And he wants his body returned to Canaan, rather than buried in Egypt, because of his faith in God's promises. In fact, it's an act of symbolism related to his faith in God's promise. Do you remember what the promise is that he's been given? The same promise Isaac was given, the same one Abraham was given. In that promise, among other things, the Lord said that one day the people who descend from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would share in the inheritance of a land. And that land specifically was a land that reached from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River, from the city of Damascus down to the brook of Egypt. It's a huge, expansive land. It pretty much defines the Middle East today. That would be the land God would give to this people. But none of these men, not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, none of them received that promise in their lifetime. Abraham and Isaac died in the land, having never received their full inheritance, not by the way God defined it. And now you have Jacob preparing to die outside the land, still without what God promised. So what do we have to say about God and his promises? Why did these patriarchs continue to trust in a promise even after they clearly saw their forefathers not receiving it in their lifetime? What good is a promise if it's not coming true? So how can God be faithful to his promises, given their circumstances? Well, the answer is resurrection. The answer to how is God going to be faithful to this promise is resurrection. These men had faith 
that they would be resurrected someday into new physical bodies and those new physical bodies would live again on this earth and that in that new form they would receive the inheritance that God has said they will have. They trusted that their physical death was no barrier to God's ability to keep his word. It merely delays the fulfillment for some period of time. So they each asked, if you notice, each of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now, have each asked to be buried in the land that God said would be theirs one day. It's as if their expectations were so strong that they didn't want to consider the possibility of waking up in the new body, so to speak, of being resurrected only to find themselves thousands of miles from their home. They're thinking, why don't you just stage me there now so that when I come to life in my new body, I'll already be at home. It's evidence of their faith that they were so certain about where they wanted to be buried. And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament confirms everything I just said. Hebrews 11:13 starts this way. Speaking of these patriarchs, the writer says, "All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth." For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country from which they came out from, then they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What the writer is reminding us is that the men and women who are listed in chapter 11 of Hebrews, these men and women of faith, that the writer refers to. They all demonstrated their faith through some actions. And in the case of the patriarchs, they demonstrated their faith principally by the way they lived and the way they died. They lived as wanderers, knowing that the land they had in their first lifetime was not the fulfillment of the promise. And then secondly, they lived with an expectation of resurrection, which is reflected in even their desire to be buried in a certain place, to be prepared for that future day. Friends, I don't think there's a more succinct description in all of the Bible, of all the New Testament included, of our calling as Christians in our life on this earth. I don't think you can sum it up any better than the way Jacob did. We forsake any attachments to this world, living with this ever-present expectation of our resurrected life in the kingdom to come. That's our calling as Christians, knowing that there will be a day when we will see the fulfillment of God's promises And in that day, we'll have a new glorified body. We'll have the absence of pain and suffering that comes with it. We'll receive an inheritance that can never be taken away from us, Scripture says. And in that day, we will have that life and life abundantly that Jesus promised. That's the day to come. That's our resurrected future. But for now, we live in faith and in hope of that future day, waiting for those good things to come. And the danger for Christians, especially in our contemporary world, particularly in our Western world, is that we trade one for the other. We trade our hope in resurrection for some attachment to this world. We try to rush the plan. We say, I don't want to wait till I'm dead and resurrected and then I receive the glory that God has promised. I want it now. For example, there are people who would teach and mislead to think that the promises of God are actually intended to be fulfilled in this life here and now. And that if you're not seeing it, you're doing something wrong. Your faith isn't strong enough. You're not praying enough. You don't have the manna and the prayer cloth or whatever else they're trying to sell. And you will not understand 
that though there are evidences of God's grace in our life now, certainly there are many, this life is not the fulfillment of those blessings and of those promises. It is only a taste of it. In fact, Paul says concerning what God is prepared to do for us, that when he put his spirit in us as believers, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses a very interesting word when he describes the giving of the spirit to believers. In Ephesians 1.13, he calls it a down payment. Listen to this, Ephesians 1.13. He says, in Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given, listen, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Paul says the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge. But that word in Greek is a fascinating word. It, its most literal translation for us in English today would be earnest money. You ever bought a house? If you have, then you know that as you begin the process with a seller, you have to show some true desire, some earnest intent to finish the deal. And in order to do that, as you start the process, you write a check to that seller of a certain amount, maybe $1,000, maybe $2,000. And that check is called what? Earnest money. It's your evidence of earnestness that you're going to go through with this deal. Now, is that enough money to buy the house? Not even close, but it's enough to prove your intentions. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is given to us by God the Father as his earnest money to us, proving that what he began, he will complete in us one day. For now, we don't have it all, but what we have is enough to know that the rest is coming. Jacob is demonstrating here that same kind of attitude, and in doing so, he becomes a model for us. In fact, Hebrews, going back to Hebrews 11, Hebrews actually cites this moment in chapter 47 and chapter 48 of Genesis as proof that Jacob was a man of faith. Listen to what it says. One verse, Hebrews 11:21. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, have you ever read that and wondered how did that prove faith? Well, let me show you how. Notice first it says he was dying and then that he's worshiping on the head of the staff or leaning on the staff. This is an odd detail, but it's the Hebrew writer's subtle way of drawing your attention back to Genesis 47. His intention is that he would remind you of the story we're studying now and you would connect the dots in your head. Notice in verse 21 of Hebrews 11, it says that he was leaning on the top of his staff. But if I go to chapter 47 of Genesis, where we are this morning, and I look at verse 31, it says that Israel worshipped where? At the head of the bed. Well, guess what? That's a poor translation. That's actually not what it says. The word in Hebrew there is mitah, M-I-T-T-A-H, which does mean bed. But there's another almost identical word in Hebrew, mitah, M-I-T-T-A, no H at the end. If you were to look at those two words written in Hebrew, they look almost identical. The only difference between the two is a little accent over one of the letters. More than likely, one of the copyists who was responsible for copying the ancient texts left off that little accent. And when they did, it turned the word from staff to bed. How do we know that it should have been staff? Well, the Hebrews own translation of their Bible into Greek, which we call the Septuagint 
it correctly shows the word as staff. And then we have the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament confirming for us that it should have been staff and not bed. In other words, Jacob is not leaning on the head of his bed while he worships. He's leaning on the head of his staff as he worships. And so the writer of Hebrews is using the same language to remind us that that was the moment when Jacob demonstrated faith. Well, what did I see in that moment to show me Jacob demonstrating faith? I saw him demanding to be buried in Canaan. That request is proof that he believed he would be resurrected so that he could receive the promises of God. That request was his demonstration of faith. And the writer of Hebrews also mentions that this happened in conjunction with blessing Jacob's sons or Joseph's sons. Well, that just leads us into chapter 48. Look with me in chapter 48, verses 1 through 7. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now, your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that you have born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, as for me, when I came from Padam, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. All right, so Jacob is near death. We've had that now several times. We get that. He's almost at the end of his life. And as a result, it's time for him to transfer the birthright to his next generation. Now, remember, every father in every family, not just this one, had an inheritance. Just as fathers and mothers have inheritance now, something that they can pass on to their children when the time comes and the inheritance consisted of all the property they'd ever acquired all the wealth of the family just as it would today in that day the inheritance would be divided according to the patriarch's wishes usually among all of his sons but when it came time to pass that inheritance there's usually some moment somewhere near the end of his life where he recognizes he needs to make this designation so as he reaches that point he comes to the moment when he's going to assign the birthright and to stipulate where it goes. But the birthright is a special designation. Every son, unless they were excluded for some reason, every son received something, but only one received the birthright. And the birthright traditionally belonged to the oldest son. We've studied this, I know, already. And it entitled him to two things principally. Remember, he got a double portion of what everybody else was getting. He got double. And then secondly, he became the new patriarch. The crown of authority in the family was passed from the father to that son who obtained the birthright. Now, how did they get to the double portion? Well, it was actually a pretty simple calculation. You would divide the estate into a number of portions equal to the number of sons plus one. So in Jacob's household, you have 12 sons. So Jacob was saying, I'm going to take my entire wealth and I'm going to divide it into 13 instead of 12. And somebody's going to get two. That's the double portion. Now, in this case, in the case of the family of Jacob, we've learned that the inheritance had another piece to it. 
a special, unique thing that had been given to them by God. And that was the seed promise, as I've called it, the seed promise. This is the promise God delivered first to Abraham and then passed down from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob. And this is a promise that God said could be inherited, that it was God given to this family. It became a part of their wealth, so to speak, a part of their posterity, and it could be inherited and moved down from father to son and so on. But because this was something God established and God assigned to the family, God reserved the right to decide where it went. Though the patriarch may have had his own thoughts about who received the inheritance that he had to give, because the inheritance of these men had this other piece that God had added, this seed promise, the promise that through this family would come a Messiah, who one day would bring the salvation God promised not only to Israel but to all nations, that promise, having been attached to the family's inheritance, gave God the right to determine where the inheritance would go from that point forward. And as we've seen that happening, it's been comical at times to watch the interplay between the patriarch and God, hasn't it? Abraham thought it should go to Ishmael. God says, it's going to Isaac. Isaac thought it should go to Esau. They even had a fight over it. They bargained over it. God said, no, it's going to Jacob. Remember Judah and Tamar? The baby sticks the hand out, ribbon goes on, baby says, pulls it back in, new baby comes out, right? The point is, God has never relinquished his sovereign authority over where this birthright and the seed promise goes. And he's done that to make clear this is his, not theirs, his. And it was granted to them by his grace. So now the question gets interesting. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So now the question is, Where does it go next? How does it get moved from Jacob to the next generation? And at this point, Jacob is preparing to pass on the birthright. And so our favorite question returns. Let's guess who's going to get it. Jacob makes this particularly challenging for us because he had four different women giving him children. And you have to ask, well, which one was the first for each wife? But then does that mean the first that came out from the first wife is over the first that came out from the second wife or not? How do we figure this out? How is God going to dictate it? Well, Joseph is called in. Jacob begins by calling Joseph in, and he asks him to bring his two sons. Now, Manasseh and Ephraim were the sons that Joseph had by that Egyptian daughter of the priest while he lived in Egypt. And as he brings them into his presence, he begins by recounting the fact that he has this inheritance to pass on. And he emphasizes, if you notice, that this is an inheritance that includes a promise from God. And then... As he recounts all of what God has given him and he is now ready to pass it on. In past generations, the Lord has always made clear where the transfer would go, right? When it came time to pass on to the next son, he made it very clear. Everything goes. The entire inheritance that Abraham had went to Isaac. All of it. Did Ishmael get anything? Did he even get a single portion? No. Did Esau and Jacob share anything? Not at all. Everything went to Jacob as God intended. So now the question becomes, Jacob's got 12 sons, all of whom we know are intended to be part of the family of God, the people of Israel. Is he going to give all of it to one and cut the others off? How is God going to handle 12 sons now? Where in the past he's only had to deal with two. Well, we get part of our answer here in part in chapter 49. The part we get here is the birthright piece, the seed promise we hear about later. In fact, we'll hear that it goes to Judah, as you already know. And we'll find that out later. But for now, we understand how the birthright gets distributed. Jacob here said he's determined now to give to Joseph the double portion by giving each of Joseph's sons one portion. 
He says, I am going to take your two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. I'm going to legally adopt them. They are no longer Joseph's sons. They are legally Jacob's sons, as if his own wife had given birth to them from this point forward. Joseph suddenly has no children, legally speaking. He says, your sons will become every bit as much as mine, as much as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Now, that's an interesting phrase because Reuben and Simeon were the first two sons born of the first wife. They are literally the first two children that Jacob had. And therefore, in saying that Joseph's new sons will be like those two, he is literally saying they take the place of Reuben and Simeon in the birth line. He now considers Manasseh and Ephraim to be the first two children in his family. You see further evidence of that in verse 8. In verse 8, Jacob makes this reference to Rachel's death. He says, Rachel died on a road, leading me into Canaan while giving birth to Benjamin. We know that story, right? She hadn't made it yet to Bethlehem, to Ephrath. She hadn't made it there yet. She was on the road. But what's interesting is the name Ephrath, it's the same word as Ephraim in Hebrew. What he's saying is that I am now adopting these two sons in place of what I was denied by Rachel's death. By her dying before I could get to Ephraim, I now have an opportunity to complete what she could not do for me in her death. In effect, my opportunity for a third son from Rachel was stolen from me, and so now I will have three sons from Rachel. So by adopting those sons, he has effectively given Joseph the double portion of the birthright. Every other brother will receive a single portion. But in the way he did it, there's some interesting wrinkle here. Neither grandson alone got the double portion. Manasseh got a single portion. Ephraim got a single portion. So now what you have in the family are 13 sons of Jacob, each receiving one of those 13 portions I talked about. No one receiving the double by himself. And therefore, there is no birthright holder. Not in the sense of anyone who can carry forward in the family declaring themselves to be patriarch. The notion of patriarch just disappeared from the family. There are leaders of tribes and there are leaders of families, but there is no longer one man who can stand up in the nation of Israel and declare themselves to be the patriarch. In the way that Jacob handed it out, he dissolves it. That's why we say Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and go no further. Because that is the end of that patriarchal line. Now, you still have to have leaders. And there is a day to come in which the nation of Israel demands to have a king. And when that day comes, and when God is ready to give it, the king that he appoints from the line of Judah will become the one who leads. And that's where the seed promise goes. The seed promise will go, as we'll see in chapter 49, into the hands of Judah, who will later become the tribe to produce the kings of Israel. Chronicles explains this very succinctly. First Chronicles 5, verse 1 and 2. Now, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. And though Judah prevailed over his brothers and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So the writer in Chronicles makes it clear that there was the leadership given through the family of Judah while the birthright went to the sons of Joseph, but it was divided in such a way that it could never be given out again. Isn't it interesting how God took care of that? He needed Abraham. He needed Isaac. He needed Jacob, a threesome, which could provide some picture of the Trinity if you look at it carefully and then dissolved it so that from that point forward, the way the Lord directs his people is through a nation, no longer through an individual. 
This is evidence that God himself is directing this patriarch to adopt these sons. As we finish today, there's a yet another powerful picture of Christ in this moment. First, I want you to notice what Jacob says in verse 6 again. Jacob stipulates that if Joseph should have any other children after this moment, and by the way, he never does as far as we know, but if he did, those children would not be considered part of Israel. They would be considered part of Joseph's Egyptian family. And you notice it says that they would share in their own inheritance. They would share in whatever inheritance Joseph passed on, not the inheritance that Jacob has, because the inheritance Jacob has skipped Joseph. Joseph gets no inheritance from Jacob. It goes only to his sons. Remember, his sons became part of Jacob's family. They're no longer part of Joseph's family. Joseph has become an Egyptian, married to an Egyptian, gaining Egyptian wealth and an Egyptian inheritance. And Jacob says, from here on out, any of that wealth that you might acquire will be shared among whatever new children you have, and that is yours to pass on. My wealth is going to your two sons who have become my sons, and that's where the family of Israel is going forevermore. Joseph's tribe continues through Ephraim and Manasseh, not on his own. There is no tribe of Joseph. There's only the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. Clearly, Jacob does not want any of the inheritance of God's people, of the nation of Israel, to be shared with the world, with the Egyptians who represent the world. The only way to ensure that outcome was to take Joseph's sons away from Joseph and into his own family and remove them from the world. And so it is with us in Christ. So it is with believers and Christ. The Bible teaches that we were once children of the world, children of disobedience. And then one day, according to God's will and sovereign plan, he adopted us. The Bible says that we were adopted by the father and made his sons rather than where we began as sons of the world. And because we are adopted as sons of God, we now have a promise to receive a share of an inheritance that comes to us through that new relationship. Paul says in Ephesians 1.5, He, referring to the Father, He, the Father, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And then down to verse 10. In the Father also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Look at the parallel. I could take the words of Ephesians 1 and substitute Joseph and Jacob for Father and Christ. Listen to it if I do that, just playing with the text for a moment. And Jacob predestined us to adoption as sons through Joseph to himself. That's the picture being formed here, that the sons of Joseph had no prospect to share in the inheritance of Jacob, except that the father Jacob would step in and adopt them as his own. And in doing so, what was to be Joseph's, what inheritance was to be Joseph's is now shared with them. The Bible says our inheritance, that role or life that we're going to lead when we come into the glory that is promised to all who know Christ that day in our resurrected future. That day is a day in which we share in the inheritance of Christ, we're told. We receive what should be his by his merit, not our own. We become the one who benefits from it because we've been adopted by the Father. That's the picture being drawn here. And Joseph's faithfulness and Joseph's obedience is what made possible his son's opportunity to be blessed by Jacob, by his father. Because Jacob loved Joseph. 
And he honored Joseph by taking the birthright and assigning it to him. But he skipped over and gave it to his sons. And folks, Jesus' faithfulness and his obedience on the cross is the basis on which the Father can then make an opportunity for us to share in an inheritance that we otherwise would have no hope for. And it comes to us because he skipped over his son, so to speak, and appointed it for us to share in it with him. Next week, we're going to see evidence of God's sovereignty in all of this. If you can't see it, I guess already, as Joseph tries to do what all his forefathers have tried to do and never have been able to succeed at doing either. And that is to direct the hand of God through the hand of his father so as to assign the principal blessing to the one he prefers. I'll give you one guess how it turns out. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, where do we begin in thanking you for the inheritance that will be ours by faith one day? Where do we begin, Father, in considering what you were willing to do with your son to make that possible for us? Thank you so much, Father, for the pictures of it in the scripture. I pray that we have come to a better understanding of not only what is in store for us and why we remain faithful and unattached, but I also pray, Father, it's given us greater confidence to know that one day we will receive what you have promised that we have an inheritance that we share. One that has been made possible by Christ's obedience. We hear the doctrines. We know the stories, perhaps. We're reminded from Sunday school to Sunday school about such matters. But have we really felt them in our heart, Father? Are we living according to them? Do we look out on the world as you've presented it to us here, full of sin and selfishness, focused on the enemy rather than on you? And do we get wrapped up in that? Do we grow attached to it? Do we begin to think that despite what Scripture says, that this is our best life now? Don't let us fall for those deceptions, Father. Let us remember that our best life is yet to come. And only if we are an unbeliever is our best life truly here now. I pray, Father, that those who might hear this message and not know the truth would recognize that by faith in Christ they can receive a share of this inheritance. And for those who know this already, Father, I pray we would be courageous enough to live according to our faith. Let us be a witness, Father, in the way that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were. Thank you for a church and a church family that knows and honors and listens to your word. May we be grown with others who care to do the same. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.